Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. Man, lift I cease pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My right eye scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. Happy Administrative Assistance Day, Dave. Thank goodness we have administrative assistance. I don't know if I could do this job. I know I couldn't do this job without an administrative assistant. So, yes, I, I of all the Hallmark holidays, we, I don't think we've done a grade book on the Hallmark holidays, but I think that if one. we were to, uh, we'd give an A plus to administrative assistant today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've got someone that has an administrative role at Kings that's sort of, sort of that for the provost. Not exactly that. It's a little different role, but um, certainly appreciated. Uh, knew the role and and has jumped right in with both feet and doing a great job. So definitely worth extending thanks and uh, appreciation to those people that uh, manage the details and uh, help keep everything moving forward appropriately. Aristotle, I think, would be in favor of Administrative Assistance Day as well. There's a lot of administration in the politics. <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> has true. to get taken care of. So I think we've got our, our, our longest selection today. So maybe we should get right to it. Sure. So we're going through book seven and we're in our third part of book seven, chapters eight through 12. If you remember back two weeks ago, Aristotle introduced this notion that he really kind of, I think, hit upon earlier in the politics that the best life for both individuals and states is the life of virtue. And when you're asking yourself, well, what does that amount to in terms of happiness? It's not necessarily the external goods that are produced by that virtue, but the inner character itself uh, that creates a, a certain flourishing, uh, both for the individual uh, and for the state. Now, last week, we took a look at the material elements that go into practicing virtue well, the size of the state, should the state be large or small, uh, the territory of the state, um, uh, should it be a large territory, a smaller territory, uh, and should it be placed upon a, a, a more land-based uh, setting or seafaring uh, setting? So here, you know, throughout Aristotle's portrait of flourishing, he takes into account that there are uh, material things that go into uh, flourishing and there are ideational things that go into flourishing as well. And, and really a lot of human life, given that we are creatures who can have ideas about things, can conceptualize things, is trying to think through not making thing, all things simply about matter, uh, but thinking through how we can kind of orchestrate uh, the material conditions uh, and uh, the various um, ideational conditions of our existence uh, to, the, to the betterment of, of, of all. So um, for today's discussion, he's going to talk about the functions of the state. He's going to talk once again about um, how this relates to uh, occupations, how it relates to um, public planning, public policy, 
And I think, Matt, he's getting us ready for book eight because he's going to, in book eight, uh, talk about the, uh, the necessity of education uh, for, for flourishing. So beginning of uh, chapter eight of book seven, a state is a community of equals aiming at the best life possible, uh, which is happiness. There are different men who have different qualities and hence you have different forms of government, different states uh, who seek happiness uh, differently. But every state has to provide certain functions and those functions are six that he lists in chapter eight. Food, you need sustenance. Arts, you need uh, arts that are um, kind of celebrate uh, human flourishing. Arms, you need the ability to defend yourself. Revenue, you need money to pay uh, for the state. Religion, uh, public worship is important. And then finally, decision, what I call decision-making power. Uh, you need an authority, whether it's an adjudicatory authority uh, who's making a decision on a case between uh, partisans or legislative authority who is deciding you know, how things um, should work out uh, for their best. Every state, he argues, should be framed with a view to the fulfillment of these functions. So if you have a state that tends nicely towards its defense, so it has all the arms in the world, and yet uh, it does nothing for food, arts, revenue, religion, then that state would be incomplete. Uh, any state needs to be thinking about all of these things. What do you make of this list of functions? Are, is there anything missing or are you surprised, Matt, by some of the things that he listed in these basic functions? I think it's a great summary of, of the life that he experienced as an ancient Greek. Uh, you know, think about what is it that, that provides for the necessities of a city, and that would be those first two categories, primarily the food and the arts. Um, arts including you know, what we would call like tradesmen and things of that sort, in addition to the higher arts, maybe, um, performative arts, things of that sort. Uh, and, then, and then some things that we would expect to, to find on any list, you know, having some kind of government authority and uh, military. Uh, and of course, the one that probably jumps out at you as you think about it as either a, a modern or as alternatively a Christian is including religion on the list. Right? So on the one hand, from a Christian point of view, you say, well, this, this is a kind of domesticated religion that serves the interests of the state. And so it's, it's something that is subordinate to the good of the state in, in a way that um, you know, Christianity, true religion, uh, cannot be. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, as, as, as a modern uh, in our day, you might say, well, wait a second, what, why is the, the government involved in religion at all? Uh, isn't that something that's a matter for uh, private consideration? Yeah, it's interesting when you go through that uh, distinction that there is Christian virtue, there is public virtue, and then there is private virtue or private choice. And uh, for Aristotle, he's willing to suggest here that public virtue is essential. And as you rightly pointed out, it's not the Christian virtue that we know is pointed towards the truth of our a need to glorify God. But it's interesting, right, that in today's setting, both public virtue and Christian virtue seem to be on the outs. And to the degree that Christian virtue is on the ends, it's kind of a Christian private virtue, right? It's a, a matter of your conscience uh, to many. So the importance of a kind of public morality, of public virtue that Aristotle will emphasize over and over 
in these chapters, and in particular in, in book eight, where he gets into education, that tends not to be the way of the world, especially in, in the West in the, in the 21st century. And um, I think that, you know, here it's, it's, it's interesting that he ties this in the next chapter, chapter nine, to occupations. And he's going to say something that's also, I think, you know, very uh, particular to his age, but there may be a point to what he's suggesting. He asked the question at the beginning of chapter nine, whether all, all people ought to share in every sort of occupation. And he says, no, that the state who tends, which tends towards uh, happiness, public happiness, should be governed um, by men who are just absolutely. And, and those men need leisure uh, for the development of their virtue and the performance of their political duties. So here he's kind of set aside a whole class of people that would tend toward the public virtue uh, of the state. And I mean, we have something you know, similar to that today, right? We have a, certainly an administrative class who watches over the state, but we don't look at that administrative class the same way as Aristotle is depicting these leaders. When our administrative class are those who take care of the needs of the people. They're not necessarily thinking right about public virtue per se. It's, it's more an answer to the question, who gets what, when, and how, right? Then why and to what end? Yeah, they're a group that I don't think we would see as any particular elite. I mean, they may be better educated on average than the typical American, but, um, you know, this class that we're talking about with Aristotle is a group that uh, enjoys leisure, uses that leisure for study and reflection to be both virtuous in their own character, but also to have, have the wisdom, the, the prudence to govern political affairs well. Um, so it's really an aristocratic kind of vision here. Uh, but you know, that's not how we think about <laughs> political leaders in our own day, uh, partly because we, we vote them in and out. And so we have kind of a, a certain measure of uh, superiority over them. Right? They're, they're, they're there by our leave. And so that affects how we look at them. Uh, but also just because, you know, the, we don't have that aristocratic culture where a certain class is being well prepared for that kind of service. Yeah, it's also interesting that when he talks about tradespeople in his own day, they're performing kind of a function of the means of the state. But in many ways, as our material desires, the fulfillment of our material desires become an end in itself. You think of industry leaders in our country today, those who kind of are CEOs of, of Fortune 500 companies, those individuals are kind of placed on a pedestal, right? So the tradesman, the industrious person in, in American life is considered to be somewhat heroic or a necessity, uh, a necessity uh, to life. The Elon Musk uh, is celebrated. Uh, and and the politician is demeaned. So it's kind of a turning upside down of these two uh, occupational uh, statuses. Yeah, interesting. And, uh, you know, you wonder how much that's a, a cultural democratic thing and whether that accords with merit to some degree of our, of our politicians earned uh, their lower status. Yeah. So here, um, this this would be interestingly applied to the distribution of land and Aristotle's thoughts on public and private property in, in chapter 10. 
Here, you remember in Plato's Republic that there's a suggestion that property ought to be in common among the guardians of, of the state. But Aristotle writes, I do not think that property ought to be in common, as some maintain, but only that by friendly consent, there should be a common use of it and that no citizen should be in want of subsistence. Really interesting uh, reformulation of how we look at property, that, that there ought to be public virtue encouraged and hence um, public property is, is necessary for uh, that public virtue. Uh, and that there ought to be this um, tendency to, to want to bring up every citizen so that they're not at such a low state that they may be revolutionary. So you have to take into account uh, the, the public good. And um, you know this discussion here in chapter 10 uh, might be one that for your contemporary American conservative politician, it'd be, it'd be a horrible thought, right? Uh, because the tendency among uh, most American conservatives uh, in the 20th century, particularly those who have been um, uh, formed by kind of Herbert Hoover's notion of this rugged individualism is that, that that's not the purview of the state to, to tend to these things. But Aristotle is saying that there's a real public role that ought to be played uh, by the state in terms of lifting those up who don't have subsistence, uh, in terms of even supporting uh, common meals uh, and religious worship. Would these be the ancient equivalents of a kind of a welfare program uh, today? Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, that, that, that continues on into the Christian context. Uh, you know, very early on in Massachusetts, uh, under the Puritans, you know, even in the colonial period, you had uh, poor laws that helped to, to care for those that were indigent for various reasons. There was always the, the underlying biblical principle that you needed to be willing to work uh, if you were able to work, and that it wasn't right to subsidize laziness, which is clearly unbiblical. But for people that had you know, tragic circumstances, um, you know, had had diminished capacities physically or mentally. Uh, these were people that that uh, were a, a public responsibility to be cared for. I think the other piece of it that I like is the language of of a friendly consent around holding things in common, which I think is is a real nice way of capturing the kind of Christian ideal that you see in a good church, right, where where no one's forced to care for their brother or sister in need, but they don't have to be forced, right? You, you, you hear that somebody's lost their job and you want to do something about that. And, you know, what, what can you do? Well, maybe it's a, it's a small thing. Maybe you provide a meal or two, but maybe, you know, you've got some connections. Maybe you don't make a rent payment, you know, whatever the case might be. But, but there are, you know, there's, there's a way of, of sharing that which was one, one's own, which doesn't um, undercut private property. But, but which also says, yeah, but that private property is mine on condition. I'm a steward of something from God, not the absolute owner, kind of miserly holding on to grasping, oh, this is all mine. I, I earned it. You can't take it away from me. That, that, that kind of branch of the conservative movement really runs contrary, not just to Aristotle, but I think to, to a Christian sensibility uh, of a proper appreciation that, that what one has, one has um, by gift of God. It's interesting that this way of looking at things is very supportive of, of the notion of a public philosophy that could form a common ground among people, even though they had disagreements as to how to reach the end of, of public happiness. There'd still be that standard there that you judged everything by, every policy by. And you know, one of the 
better articles, essays, uh, books written in the middle of the 20th century was written by a journalist named Walter Lippmann titled The Public Philosophy, in which he suggested that by the middle of the 20th century, one of the great dangers for the American Republic is that we were successful on a variety of different levels, but our friendly consent uh, had merely um, become the, the friendly consent to trade with one another as private parties, but we didn't have kind of that larger friendly consent uh, or abiding by some larger principles uh, that, that held us together. So um, that that's, this would be uh, dangerous in the future, especially if we begin to not like one another, uh, which kind of tends to happen starting with the 1960s and a lot of the cultural divisions that occur. So um, here when people are kind of searching for a way out in the 21st century or a way forward in the 21st century as to how we might recapture some of that earlier friendly consent, uh, the desire for a public philosophy may be a good desire to have these days. So um, not to make too much of this, but you go into chapter 11 of book seven and, and here Aristotle is talking a little bit like, a sound a little bit like an environmentalist. He's talking about the winds coming from the east and the site of the city should uh, be convenient for both the political administration and more. Talks about water quality and air quality and how important those two things are to health, uh, how you arrange the city's grid. Uh, do you want a city grid like New York that is predictable or one like Boston where you get lost in your own neighborhood? Uh, these are things that right, the, the, the individual who is administering over uh, the public good uh, ought to tend to. And then uh, finally, and this would be an important, uh, particularly in an ancient uh, setting, city walls. Uh, what, how, do you, how do you construct city walls? I think for um, each of these discussions, when you're talking about health and location and grid and, and walls, I think the thing that stood out to me, Matt, was Aristotle's emphasis on, you know, place your city, situate your city, organize your city geographically so that it's best protected in times of war but that it also can flourish in times of peace, that you're not just simply set up for a life of peace and leisure or a life of war. You want to account for these times of war and times of peace that, that you know are coming for any city. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I appreciate that perspective because, you know, you get some advice later on, maybe in Machiavelli, right, where, where you orient everything toward war. And, you know, you never think about anything other than war and planning for the next war and you go, go through all the, the need for the fortresses and all the rest. And so maybe like the, the Spartans of old, you, you know, you're always ready to fight, but then when do you get to enjoy peace? Right? One of Aristotle's fundamental insights is that war is for the sake of peace, not the other way around. So, so yeah, we have to think about peace as well. There's also an interesting comment, I think on, on ancient notions of manliness uh, around walls, right? Because if you, if you have walls, does it encourage people to be soft? And of course, there is a danger there, right? That, that, a kind of reliance, anyway, in that wall and, and a confidence, oh, no, we're, we're safe. Now, you think about the French after World War I, building the Maginot Line. And, okay, that's it. You know, don't have to worry about the Germans invading again. And, of course, what happens at the beginning of World War II is they just, in the meantime, have developed mechanized warfare, just drive right around those forts. <laughs> those forts would have been great. If they'd been there 20 years before, but war had changed, and so the the, the, the false confidence that that was embedded in having those walls. So I think 
Aristotle gives us a nice means ends kind of perspective as he so often does. So that you understand what you're doing when you're building a wall, right? There are dangers out there, but if that's the only preparation you're making for conflict, you're in big trouble because the wall won't save you if, if the enemy is strong and you're not otherwise well-prepared. Well, chapter 12, the final chapter of book eight, I think kind of brings these things together. And this is a very important lesson that I think has been lost upon us. It may be the lesson that you put under the heading, what you see is what you get. And what you see is very important within a city. The activity that you see is important. And there's a good type of activity that every citizen ought to be viewing. Uh, hence the importance of public squares or agoras that are within a city in which either you're seeing uh, public worship uh, or you're seeing um, public virtue uh, on display. Um, I often think when people ask me, well, what do you think is the greatest problem in education in the 21st century? And I, and I say, well, oftentimes the thing that I've seen is how difficult it is for my students to look me in the eye, to actually look at something happening, to look at a conversation take place. Now, this comes from a variety of reasons. They're distracted by other things that they're looking at. But how many agoras, how many public squares, how many places of public encouragement are there today for us to look at? Here, Aristotle's hitting this point home that if you don't have good things to look at, that you see that hold a community together, then that community might not be standing too long. And there's just a whole bunch of bad things that we're looking at now instead of those good things. And you know, you hear think about the, the great design that went into Washington, uh, DC, uh, the national capital. Now, these are things that are, are put into place uh, to produce a sense of duty uh, and obligation uh, and unity. Uh, and those things are, you know, a lot, a lot of these things are being torn down these days or are being undercut. And if we don't have these kind of uh, symbols, places, things that we're looking at that hold us together, how much longer will we stay together? Yeah, you think well, what's replacing them, right? Of course, all the, the news this week is about Elon Musk taking over Twitter, but whether it's Twitter or any other social media that's a gathering place in a sense, right? Where people are seeing things and, and they're experiencing a certain kind of community. Uh, and yet, what is that kind of community? What, what, what are the virtues that are being inculcated by that public square? Uh, I think Musk you know, has a different vision for what that would look like on Twitter than, than is at present, uh, but will it be better? Uh, probably in some ways, but it, but it may not be in other ways, right? It, it may still be a place where uh, it, it's criticism first. It's, it's thoughtless. I mean, 80 characters is just not enough, right? <laughs> to develop a thoughtful comment about anything. So how far can, can the medium be improved? Can Twitter actually be improved? Uh, and, and, and broadly speaking, can social media be that public square that, that brings people together in a way that, that encourages real virtues? Or is it always going to be a place where we're kind of putting on a pose Right, trying to get a certain vision of our own life out there, uh, creating an impression of something that's not actually real underlying it all, and, and just kind of parading before others right, for their, for their praise and, and trying to dodge their criticism rather than really having held up for us ideals that would inspire us to, to sacrifice 
for the common good, to, to care about justice, to pursue these things in, in a real and serious way, rather than the kind of superficial way that's so endemic in our culture. So a cynic may say here, well, 200 years ago, the different parties had their you know, political pamphlets and attacked one another and often attacked one another aggressively. So use kind of the, the social media uh, of that day uh, in a way that didn't produce unity, but more uh, discord. What do you think was present back then that might have held things together that, you know, when we see these similar attacks in the 21st century, it just doesn't, it seems to be that that's all that we're looking at are the attacks. Yeah. Well, you mean, you mentioned the intentional efforts right, to build cities in a way that, that drew people together, that in monuments held out um, individuals who had achieved great things as, as exemplary and as examples for the people. I think you also find, uh, we, we, we studied the Federalists very carefully. And what do you have there? Well, you've, you've got the, the high-toned newspaper debate. Right? No, there, there's the low-toned newspaper debate. There's the, you know, the kind of ugly epithets and all that. Absolutely. I, I talk to my students about it all the time. Don't, don't think that uh, dirty politics or you know, throwing mud at your opponent was invented yesterday. That, that's as old as American politics. But then read the Federalist and read Brutus and the Federal Farmer that Publius was responding to. And you see that there is something more, right? And, and, that, and that's at the fore of the debate. These are, these are leading thinkers, not, not just for, sort of in, in, a, in a corner of the internet where a few thoughtful people might be engaging them, but this is front and center. Right? And this is a, a key element of, of a debate over the most important decision in American history up until that point. So I think there was room for that kind of elevated engagement in the public square that, that in theory we can still have today, but it just doesn't ever rise enough into the American consciousness to really force us to, to deal with those arguments at a level that's beyond the superficial. All right, well, since finals week is coming at King's and probably not too far behind at Geneva, uh, we're gonna go back to the grade book. Seems appropriate this time of year. And uh, also appropriate to this time of year, grade some graduation ceremony traditions. So Dave, this is actually our first graduation this year. Uh, our son is, is graduating from eighth grade, which of course wasn't a thing when we were growing up, um, but around here it is. And we're not super into eighth grade graduations, but uh, he wants to graduate with his friends, which is fine. And so, so we'll do that um, and you know, go through the ceremony. We've been part of the planning of that all along. Uh, but of course, we all kind of know the things that make up a typical graduation ceremony. So I want to get your grades on some of the classics and, and see if there's a way forward that perhaps maybe improves on, on the old tried and true here. All right. So we've got first the regalia. Of course, cap and gown, the whole shebang. Uh, what do you think about all that as part of the graduation ceremony, Dave? Well, I remember back to my years at the King's College where I think the average weight loss for me, like each graduate <laughs> ceremony was about two pounds because yeah. the regalia weighed about 13 pounds and it always seemed about 95 to 105 degrees and right. the churches we chose that had no <laughs> air conditioning. So I... I I can't help but from um, my own standpoint to give the, the regalia a, a D. I, I just don't like wearing them in general. I, I yeah. always prefer to kind of wear 
a shirt and tie, uh, sport coat, uh, other than those things. I think I've got to wear one again this year, so I'm not really looking forward to it. But yeah. the cap as well, it just never stays on your head. The whole right. thing, I just I, I never never quite understood. So, well, there's a certain kind yeah. of yeah tradition that I, I I'm I have sympathy with when you get to the higher levels, right? When you get to graduate school, and you know, there's certain it's a, it's a thousand year tradition, right? That you're, that you're connecting with there. And so there's some element of that that I can respect, but, but now, you know, you have it, forget about eighth grade graduation, you got kindergarten graduation, then you got caps and gowns for that. And it becomes absurd, right? Because what, what exactly is, is that cap and gown signify? What, what's been accomplished by that, by that student at that point? So I'm going to give it a, a C minus. Uh, I think at its best, there's something there but uh, it's been applied in far too many cases. And, and so the, the symbolism behind it, the connection with the medieval university is, has been all but lost. All right, second thing, of course, another classic, the outside speaker. Well, I've been an outside commencement speaker at Providence Christian uh, in 2018. It's really hard. It's, you just don't know anyone there. Yeah. Uh, and here you are trying to say something, you know, memorable and you're saying it to people that you just don't don't know. So you you have to try to take your talk that deals with generalities and give it some particular importance. So oftentimes, um, uh, because it's such a hard challenge, the speech falls short. Uh, I've, I've heard a couple of good ones. And, and I, I think so that you can have a great outside speaker, but. More often than not, that speech likewise is going to be incomplete, so uh, or imperfect. So I'm going to give it a a C minus D plus. It's it's hard to pull off. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've done that once for a local homeschool group, high school graduation, and you know there I had more of a knowledge of the students and what they've been through, and so there's a little bit more of a connection there. But it is a, it is a challenge, and you know the one thing I had I had thought about when I was doing it was okay, I want to kind of give them a little hook. Right. What, you know, one idea they can take from this, because, you know, you don't want to be long. First, first of all, that's not why anyone's there to hear you speak. And, you know, if you can say something that's that's meaningful at the margins, then you've done about all you can do. But that that's that's not easy to do, even if you're aiming to do it. And a lot of graduation speakers aren't aiming to do that. It's sort of just whatever their thoughts are. And of course, there's oftentimes, you know, the advancement team is involved in these choices sometimes, and there's a big check that's hoped for or, or received. Um, so, yeah, I think overall, if you can find a way to get it down to, you know, five minutes and, and just kind of some perfunctory thing, then it's probably okay. But the typical outside speaker uh, rarely lives up to what you would hope. So I'm going to give that a C as well. Singing the alma mater. Wow. I I know you're I mean, a big singer, Dave. We had an alma mater that was produced at Providence Christian that was was painful. And I'm proud. <laughs> it's a wonderful school, but this it was uh, painful because no one knew it. So yeah. it was like you're trying and trying to sing it, but you don't know it. And right, I can't. Did Kings have an alma mater? I did, probably do. Yeah. yeah, probably that one was written there too. I imagine. I, I don't remember that going off well either. So. We, we have yeah, a woman I, I that think, leads it who's unbelievable as a singer. And you think, this should just be a solo. Let's just let her do it. It's it's incredible the way she, it's a little of a complex song musically. So the rest of us are really struggling, but but she does it beautifully. And if that was all it was, just kind of a, a quick performance of the alma mater, it'd be great. 
but yeah, I mean, when it's not part of the culture for the school, you know, Naval Academy after the Army Navy game, they all sing the alma mater, West Point, like the, it's, it's part of the culture. You have to learn it your first year, you sing it with some regularity. Um, okay, makes sense. But when it's the one time that anyone's ever sung it and they've never learned the music and you know, it's always it's always a little tough. So, yeah, I'm going to give that one. Yeah, a I, give, give me like a, a Big Ten, you know, football chant or something like that. I think <laughs> right. That, that probably would be more appropriate for the, the event. So get the fight songs going. OK, exactly. Fight song. All right. So lastly, we've got pomp and circumstance. Of course, the great processional as as the graduates enter into the ceremony my perfect ceremony would just be playing that over and over again calling up the names handing over the diploma and then a big celebration at the end keep it to maybe 17 to 20 minutes and and it'd be great now i have to i have to i say all this on every side grade all of these things I have never seen a better commencement than the one at Geneva. I don't think we have it online, but I'd love to get it online because for whatever reason, all of these different uh, categories of things that I've graded low, whoever kind of coordinated the Geneva commencement just created this kind of beautiful thing. There are bagpipes. There are, you know, beautiful songs that people know being sung uh, it's a little long, a little longer than it should be, but it just really is a great event. So my advice to anyone planning one of these things is watch how Geneva does it and then go from there. I have nothing, I have nothing to do with it, but it's, it's really good. Yeah. Well, actually, I think the King ceremony is, is quite well done as well. Of course, last year we had five of them because we had to do it for COVID, different groups of students. And that was an amazing task, amazing coordination by, by the team that was pulling all that off. Uh, this year, thankfully, back to normal one ceremony and you know we keep it tight it's, it's typically done in an hour uh, which is pretty good considering you had everybody receiving their diploma and all the rest uh, but pomp and circumstance is the one thing that you know every time you hear it there's that stirring of the heart you sort of whether it's as as a parent anticipating graduation for your child or your own experience that one i give an a so that 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 is to me the essence of the ceremony along with the diploma the rest of it's optional all right. Well, thank you, as always, for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget you can contact us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you next week.